0: Good afternoon, and welcome to this (coughs) Hudson Institute event uh, with our distinguished panel here to discuss um, the recently released Hudson Report, Space and the Right to Self-Defense. My name is Rebecca Heinrichs. I have the privilege of serving as the study director, Um, but I couldn't have done the report without uh, the the review group that you'll find on page four of the study. Two of the members of that review group are here today, General Jacoby (coughs) and Senator Kyle, Um, The other members of the group include another Northern Command, former Northern Command Commander, General Renuart, former MDA Director, Lieutenant General Trey Obering, former Air Force Space Command Commander General Shelton, and Dr. Michael Griffin, former NASA Administrator, to name just a few. Collectively, they have more than three centuries of experience in the field of diplomacy, space security, missile defense, defense acquisitions, and of course, all have borne some responsibility for ensuring that the United States is safe and secure. The problem this study addresses is laid out in the executive summary. The United States has for decades enjoyed preeminent military stature, in large part due to the technology um, advancements since World War II. However, to an unacceptable degree, the United States has not prioritized maintaining that advantage. And near-peer competitors and even rogue states are contesting US superiority in key areas. Despite the changes to the threat environment, many of the US strategies and policies have not really changed much since the Cold War. This study makes several recommendations to change that. It should go without saying, but the study is not exhaustive. So for those of you in the audience who are familiar with national security space policy, you might be disappointed that although we do uh, talk about the importance of our space assets, we do not deal with the spectrum of threats to them. Um, the study is limited to the threat posed by direct descent um, anti-satellite missiles. This, and, and, there, and in fact, the whole study is, is try, we try to limit the scope just to missiles themselves. And that is because this is a new missile era. Rogue states, as well as near-peer competitors, are developing their missile forces to hold at risk the United States' homeland, allies, deployed forces, and space assets. The study recommends investing in current missile defense systems so that they fulfill their technical potential, as well as expanding the BMDS by deploying a more robust space sensor capability and space-based interceptor layer. We concluded that, contrary to the belief of some, this is, in fact, technically feasible, and it is affordable in the near term. We concluded that that, um, that it does not violate current treaties either. We believe the MDA should examine various concepts and devise the most cost-effective configuration and way forward we've got to get started. We also found that there should be two policy changes. One, our national security space posture cannot merely remain passive in nature. So while striving for redundancy in our space architectures is good and necessary, as is moving towards a more robust SSA capability, it simply isn't enough the United States must have the ability to actively defend and protect its space assets from attack. And two, the second policy change that the United States must move away from a limited missile defense uh, policy to one that is more robust. It does not make sense to defend against some kinds of missiles, especially those from rogue states, especially as those rogue states are developing more complex missiles. Um, while remaining vulnerable intentionally, remaining vulnerable to more sophisticated missile threats coming out of mainly China and Russia, even as those countries develop missile defense systems themselves and invest in uh, offensive capabilities to exploit US vulnerabilities. With that, I think that's enough uh, to chew on and get us started. Um, so I'm going to turn to my panel and I'm going to introduce each of them. Um, I will save some time at the end for questions. So if you could write those down to keep them concise, um, and also identify um, whom you're with, who you are, who you are, and um, what organization you're with, that would be helpful. Um, and please do hold your applause until the conclusion of the event. And with if that, <laughs> and um, as I introduce my panelists, of course. So um, the first is General Charles Jacoby, Jr., brings over 36 years of experience leading military government, and international organizations and is currently serving as senior vice chairman with Capital Peak Asset Management. Prior to retiring from the United States Army, he was the first Army officer to command North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, and the United States Northern Command. General Jacoby has commanded at all levels in joint and Army assignments, from company to geographic combatant command, including combatant, combat operations in Grenada with the 82nd Airborne Division operating into operation enduring freedom afghanistan and operation iraq iraqi freedom iraq he also served as instructor and assistant professor in the department of history at the united states military academy of west point senator tom cotton from arkansas serves on the banking committee the intelligence committee and the armed services committee and he chairs the Land subcommittee he graduated from harvard and harvard law school after a clerkship with the us court of appeals and private law practice senator cotton joined the united states army in response to the september 11th attacks and he served there for uh, nearly five years on active duty as an infantry officer. While in uniform, the Senator, he served in Iraq with the 101st Airborne and in Afghanistan with the Provincial Reconstruction Team. <clears throat> in his two combat tours, Senator Cotton served with the Old Guard in, at Arlington National Cemetery. His military decorations include the Bronze Star Medal, Combat Infantry Badge, and Ranger Tab. Senator Cotton has proven to be one of the leaders in the US Senate on security issues, and especially ones related to, st- to st- strategic policy from nuclear nonproliferation nuclear modernization and missile defense. And of course, last but not least, Senator John Kyle. The senator retired from Congress in 2013, the second highest ranking Republican senator. He advises companies on domestic and international policies that influence US and multinational businesses and assists corporate clients on defense and national security matters, among others. During Senator Kyle's 26 years in Congress, he built a reputation for mastering the complexities of legislative policy and coalition building In 2010, Time Magazine called him one of the 100 most influential people in the world, noting his encyclopedic knowledge of domestic and foreign policy and his hard work and leadership and his power to persuade. Senator Kyle sat on the Senate Finance Committee, and he also served as the ranking Republican on the Senate Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism. A member of the Republican leadership for well over a decade, Senator Kyle chaired the Republican – Senate Republican Policy Committee and the Senate Republican Conference before becoming Republican Whip. Senator Kyle was and continues to be a leader on these issues, um, on arms control, nuclear modernization, and especially of interest today on missile defense in particular, um, and also expanding missile defense to include space. And so with that, I'd like to turn to Senator Kyle for the first question, if I may. So considering you've worked on, on this initiative for many years, um, how would you assess we are doing from a policy and political perspective in gaining consensus? And also, how have you seen the threat change over the years, and how does that drive um, this policy and its importance?
1: Thank you. First, let me say it's a very great honor to be here on the panel with uh, General Jacoby and Senator Tom Cotton. Senator Cotton is not one of – he is the leader on these issues in the United States Senate today. And because of that, I'm a little bit more optimistic than I would have been a couple of years ago uh, when I was still involved in this. Obviously, science and technology change. They don't stand still. And they're especially important to warfighters, who have to understand how best to gain an advantage over their prospective opponent. Our enemies have figured out that space is not some sacrosanct area to be avoided, but rather, yet one more place in the battlefield that could be exploited. And therefore, they have applied their research and development to ways to deny the United States, a prospective adversary, of the benefits of space. It would be folly for us not to do the same thing. And yet, for too long, we have ignored the benefits of being in space and the necessity of defending our assets in space. So, two quick points. First, we're talking about defense here. We're not talking about offensive capabilities to attack somebody, but rather defending our own assets. And secondly, because countries like China, like Russia, and even North Korea and Iran, have been devoting a tremendous amount of resources to denying our access to space, as well as providing their own capabilities to take offensive advantage of it offensively, it is incumbent upon the United States as the report that you alluded to, um, it's incumbent upon us to recognize the necessity of doing that and begin to implement policies that would effectuate it. For most of the Obama administration, it's been a, a, a very uphill struggle for a variety of reasons. Very recently, the Congress has begun, I think, to appreciate the necessity of moving forward. And so, under Senator Cotton's leadership and others, in the last couple of years, you've seen the, the Congress begin to express a strong opinion that it's time to get on with developing space-based assets and particular defenses, and I am delighted uh, to see that that effort has begun.
0: Senator Cotton, you are on the Senate Armed Services Committee now, and there um, was a provision, a couple of different provisions, um, an activity towards this end in the bill this year. Can you talk a little bit about where we are and um, uh, where the consensus is on this in the, in the Senate?
2: Sure. Uh, First, thanks for having me. Thanks very much for for drafting a very insightful report. Uh, To the extent I provide any leadership or knowledge on these issues, it's only because I stand on the shoulder of a giant, John Kyle, uh, who has helped teach and mentor me on this and many other matters. Uh, So in the Armed Services Committee, we did include two provisions related to these issues uh, in the NDAA, uh, which passed on the floor as well. One would strike the term limited. From the ballistic uh, or the Missile Defense Act, uh, 1999's policy statement, uh, and two that would uh, call for the research, development, test, and evaluation of space-based interceptors. Uh, striking limited, I, I think, is an important mindset change, because when that uh, law was passed, we were in a time when. The Russian threat was receding. Uh, The China threat wasn't uh, quite as severe as it is today. The only real threat we might have faced from a ballistic missile would come from a rogue nation like North Korea or Iran. We face a very different world today. Uh, Russia has invested tremendous amount of resources in modernizing its nuclear forces. China's continued to expand its. Obviously, North Korea and Iran have been very aggressive in developing and testing ballistic missiles that are capable of holding at risk our troops and our allies, and potentially our homeland here in the United States. Um, and then the, the second provision about space-based interceptors would recognize. Uh, the important role that terrestrial or sea-based interceptors play – some of those are already deployed – but also the fact that they can't cover as far a range and they don't give as much versatility, survivability, and reliability as a space-based interceptor might. Um, Now, that may be somewhat in the future, but we don't see any reason why we should be putting self-imposed political limitations on our missile defense systems because, as John said, the threat is already with us, not just in ballistic missiles but in anti-satellite systems as well. And the United States depends more than any other nation to fight wars uh, on our space-based communications, timing, positioning, navigation systems and so forth, and our adversaries realize that those are asymmetric vulnerabilities because they don't rely on space as much as we do. They can take relatively inexpensive weapons and destroy uh, very expensive satellite systems that we have and have catastrophic effects on our ability to fight in the air and sea and on land. So there's still a lot of research to be done, a lot of studying, but the last thing we should have is political, self-imposed political limitations on uh, missile defense, and on defense in space, which, of course, very similar related technologies. But as you said, uh, it's great to have survivable satellites. It's great to have a nuclear arsenal that can deter nuclear strikes against our country. It's even better to have redundant systems in place to be able to stop other countries' sand, uh, anti-satellite weapons or to be able to stop a ballistic missile attack against the United States.
0: Right, thank you, sir. And, and that tees up the next question really well. For General Jacoby, um, Senator Cotton mentioned um, how much we rely on those space assets. So can you talk a little bit about, um, one, just how much we we depend on space, especially from a military perspective? And then, two, how the threats have have been increasing and how that has a a sort of restricting or restraining effect or how it could increasingly be so on our military?
3: Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me to be on this distinguished panel. And uh, it's good to be able to contribute to this discussion. Just from a commander's point of view uh, in space, I'm not telling uh, informed audience anything that you don't already know. Uh, we've become very reliant in some of our most important functions in war fighting and in the economy and in entertainment and how we live, uh, very reliant on space-based technologies. And we've been living a charmed existence. There haven't been extant threats to it in the past. And we've been able to put capabilities up in space with, uh, considering that uh, as, a, as a vulnerability. But now we have to uh, face reality. And uh, because we are so reliant on them, in, in many ways, space-based systems have become a center of gravity for us in different functions like command and control. And you can't leave this to chance and vulnerability and so I think that the report, and I think that the amendment that uh, has been proposed uh, gets us started uh, in a way that will help us mitigate the possibility of falling behind, uh, because there would be unacceptable consequences to having our space-based assets taken out, whether whether it's in a fight or whether it's just in our daily life, uh, like for the cars that would be without their GPS. Uh, but this is a serious this is a serious issue. And uh, we've, we've allowed a vulnerability to grow. And now we, as a responsible, uh, and our, our leaders need to be responsible in charting a course for us that at least puts us in a position uh, to do something about that vulnerability without suffering uh, undue consequences. Second part of the question.
0: And How has the, as the threats have increased? How has that had an effect on our ability to make decisions?
3: Um, and how we act from military perspective. Well, when I took over uh, NORAD and NORTHCOM in 2011, um, there are lots of things on the homeland uh, defense plate, uh, to include defense support to civil authorities, which is uh, helping our citizens in times of their greatest needs. And I was amazed at the pace of change from 2011 through the end of my command in 2014, Uh, growing threats to the homeland. And so I saw my needle, compass needle shift from worrying more about hurricanes and other kinds of things to becoming very concerned about the vulnerabilities to the homeland in all of the domains, cyberspace, space, aerospace, subsurface, surface, terrorism. uh, I think all of us if you step back and reflect it over the last four or five years, you would say, yeah, the threats to the homeland have become tangible in a way that it hasn't in the past. We used, to, we used to describe a home game and an away game. Now there's just one game. It's defending the United States. It starts forward with our long-held strategy of forward engagement and alliances, all the way back into our homeland now. And so it's sad that uh, that truth has changed. But it's not something we can just sit back and allow to happen. We have to respond to it, and we have to ensure that our decision-making at the highest level, our strategic decision-making, is not compromised by uh, new and expanding threats to the homeland. And if it is, we have to to either address that threat that's compromising our decision-making. We're going to have to change some fundamental things about our grand strategy for the United States.
0: Just to, just to put a fine point on that, for example, um, you had mentioned previously. If we know that North Korea does have the K N O eight capability, which is a, a mobile um, missile system, and they're able to uh, mount a warhead and tries a warhead and put it on there, um, it will change the calculus for our military commanders and how they would advise civilian leadership in various situations that are happening on the Korean Peninsula, for instance. Yeah, it
3: fundamentally changes the risk calculus of any of our plans anywhere in the world. If we can be held at risk in the homeland and threatened in, in a way that would be catastrophic if we were to execute that plan. Uh, I'll take more questions on that, but I, it's, it's a pretty obvious problem, but it doesn't really uh, appear until you have an actor like North Korea or Iran that we don't have a relationship with or a stable relationship or equal stakes in a problem. And all of a sudden now, all of your strategic options in the past have now been constrained to almost unacceptable options, okay? And I, I would think you all know what I'm talking about there.
0: I'd like to go back to this. Um, Senator Cotton mentioned one of the provisions that was changed was amending the 1999 National Missile Defense Act. Um, and that, that act states that, that, we, that the United States is to develop a, a system um, as soon as possible to defend against a limited missile attack, um, whether unauthorized, accidental, or you know, a purposeful attack. Um, it, it is not, the, the, the language is there so that it's, it doesn't prevent us from building a more comprehensive, more robust system, but it has had the effect of limiting um, the system. Um, that the Missile Defense Agency takes its cue from there. Policymakers look at that and say, we're only going to defend against rogue state actors. And so striking that, that limited um, would, would sort of you know, allow policymakers to say, look, we can, we can fulfill the technical potential to our missile defense systems and build what we need to based on the threat. Um, can, you, can you talk about just how that was that whenever you had that debate in the Senate Armed Services Committee, did, did you get a, a significant – was there a significant amount of uh, uh, pushback from the other party, or does it seem like we are moving forward to this idea that we need to no longer um, remain vulnerable to near-peer competitors like China and Russia, but that we should just build our defenses as we, as we see the threats appearing?
2: Well – I'm not sure how it got there in the first place. Uh, maybe John can say a little bit about that. It uh, sounds like a classic political compromise to get a few more votes at the end of a long debate. But it has had it. Ha- it didn't have to have the effect. but It has had the effect of limiting, uh, especially under this administration, um, the development of missile defenses to that one-off strike. You know, one rogue nation like North Korea or maybe someone who's not authorized by civilian command authority in in, uh, his country. Um, So we thought it was important to make it clear that Congress wants a, a robust and, you know, redundant and survivable missile defense system. There was some spirited debate, I would say, in the markup. Uh, Ultimately, it got, uh, if I recall, bipartisan support. Um, But there are still some uh, on the left who, frankly, have never gotten over uh, the U.S. walking away from the anti-ballistic missile treaty uh, in 2002 and still hold to the Cold War logic of mutually assured destruction. Um, I can't imagine, though, why we would want to live under those terms if we don't have to. Maybe the the technology, maybe the the budget implications will never allow us to reach a point where we don't have to, but I don't think we should be imposing political limitations on our abilities to protect our people from all kinds of threats, whether it's North Korea or an unauthorized strike or a submarine-launched ballistic missile or an anti-satellite. Uh, weapon or what have you. Um, we should let you know the technology take us where it can go and then we should ha- allow our policymakers to make the choices that are best for the United States and best for our people, which in my opinion would be trying to defend as much of our people and our territory and our assets and our allies as we can.
0: And Senator Kham, if you could maybe um, talk a little, bit, a little bit about that too, because you watch this sort of debate, debate unfold and there still is a little bit of um, Resistance on the part of some uh, wanting to maintain mutually vulnerable with China and Russia. Um, and the uh, opponents of, of moving forward with this would argue that should the United States expand missile defense, that that would be provocative, that that would provoke um, China, China and Russia, for instance, so that they would build more offensive capabilities and go to space.
1: That, that's a palpably fallacious argument. Uh, you simply look at what has been underway for many years by, you mentioned Russia and China both, but also rogue states like North Korea and Iran. All of our forbearance has gotten us exactly nowhere in terms of their uh, plans and, and their development. We are now becoming aware of some capabilities of the Russians in particular, which have been years in the development. And we had some idea that these things were being developed, but now they've had to come out more into the open. We've seen some tests... Uh, They've actually written about these things in their journals, and they've talked about them in their doctrine. So this has been going on for years. At the time when we were forbearing on the theory that if we did anything provocative, it would would make them have to respond in some way. Well, they were responding all along, and now it's evident uh, that they intend to have a new generation of missiles And in the case of Russia, for example, different kinds of missiles, road mobile, rail mobile, the new rail system that they have replacing the old SS-18, a a new um, kind of cruise uh, missile, uh, a hypersonic um, type of weapon uh, the United States has also worked on, as has China. China has maybe the leader in terms of anti-satellite capability, a doctrine. They've tested that. All of these things were going on at the time the United States is forbearing on the theory that if we do that, then they'll stop. And, of course, it never stopped countries like Iran or North Korea from proceeding with their plans either. So it's a foolish notion. It's palpably untrue. It's evident for anybody that looks at the data. Uh, And therefore, I I don't know why anybody would rely upon that argument in a serious
2: way. Can I just chime in and and say, uh, I mean... The idea that developing defensive capabilities, not offensive yeah. capabilities, not developing a new cruise missile, which we need, or a new uh, ballistic missile submarine, which we need, or a new long-range bomber, bomber, but defensive capabilities would be provocative. I mean, that's the kind of argument that Soviet leaders would have made as well. And just like Soviet leaders, when Vladimir Putin makes an arguments to Westerners that these defensive capabilities are provocative, and Westerners believe him, in private, he laughs at those Westerners and calls them chumps. I mean, it is not, it's impossible to say that it's provocative to develop defensive capabilities to protect your own people. And as John said, our forbearance for all these years has, has gotten us nothing but the greater vulnerabilities that General Jacoby was talking about.
0: I think that's, that's exactly right. That's what we found in the study. Um, and, and in fact, Many of the vulnerabilities that, that we've intentionally allowed to be there have been intentionally exploited, noted, and exploited. And so, um, we have seen the effect of you know weakness has provoked; it has provoked them to, to move forward in these capabilities. And so, what we found in the study is that we, what we need to do is close close those deterrent gaps that are there, um, and that would it could have the effect we think it will have the effect of dissuading them from investing in those capabilities in the first place. If we can, if we can take away that. Um, that that vulnerability that is is becoming an attractive, um, especially in the case of anti-satellite weapons and in the case of the Chinese um, and certainly the Russians as well. I and mean, we talked a little bit about um, uh, this idea too of, of, of you know the Russians and the Chinese. Now it's, it's been the Russians have for a long time opposed expanding current missile defenses. So not even talking about space. Um, we've seen lately in the news that um, as the administration moves forward on putting a THAAD battery in, in South Korea, uh, that the uh, Chinese have opposed um, opposed that, um, and, and the, in fact the Russians have as well. Um, John Jacoby, can you talk a little bit uh, about? About that, this idea um, that deploying defensive capabilities, even theater defenses, um, how dangerous it is to concede those defenses on the grounds that um, China or Russia might oppose them and and any effect that that would have on alliances and also on our own defensive capabilities.
3: Uh, In Northeast Asia, there's really a complex dynamic going on, but at the center of it is uh, a very strong and time-tested alliance. Uh, with South Korea, and uh, we have uh, made a huge commitment as a country and as a number of allies, uh, because it still remains a United Nations mission to defend South Korea, uh, we've made a, a huge investment in that to deter conflict. And conflict for many, many years uh, was, for, was seen as being a large conventional attack across the demilitarized zone. With the introduction of short, intermediate, and now long-range ballistic missiles, it's gone from a peninsula p- problem to a regional problem to include a homeland problem for us. And if we don't, uh, if we're still defending with bows and arrows when uh, uh, you know, conflict escalates, or we're not going to create the deterrent effect that we need to to keep peace on the Korean Peninsula, to keep peace in the region, and to ensure the homeland isn't held at risk. That is just a logical step that that actually was imposed by uh, the actions of the North Korean regime in demonstrating a capability and intention uh, to hold at risk South Korea with uh, intermediate and short-range ballistic missiles. Uh, there was no huge desire for us to continue the Thad line. It's a, always a fight for ballistic missile defense systems. But the truth of the matter is THAAD was uh, really the logical choice, and after intense debate and trying to assess uh, what the complexities of the environment might hold to include perceptions that the Chinese might have, we really can't get in a world where we, we refuse to defend our, ourselves and allow us to tagline Uh, legitimate, necessary, prudent defensive measures as being provocative.
0: In fact, what we have seen, um, especially over the the course of this administration, the last two terms, that um, when Russia has opposed even short-range ballistic missile defenses um, and long-range missile defenses that that the Bush administration had proposed for Poland and the Czech Republic, that when Russia uh, opposed it, uh, this administration uh, backed away from it, canceled it, and then proposed um, a the European phase, adapt approach, um, but then even the fourth phase, which was, was was supposed to provide a homeland defense capability, the administration canceled that as well. Um, and as a result, we have a system that is less capable, and we're sort of we're still playing catch up, um, even as the threat continues to grow.
3: Could I just add something to that? So one other aspect of this. So this is just a soldier's perspective, but certainly the Russians and the Chinese and other. Uh, stakeholders understand that in South Korea, besides being uh, a wonderful ally, a significant economic engine for growth throughout the world, that there are tens of thousands of American citizens living there. There There's still uh, U.S. forces there. Uh, They are playing a defensive role. They are at risk every day to a host of threats that now include the potential for ballistic missile uh, carried weapons of mass destruction. We cannot not act on that.
0: Thank you, sir. Um, but Senator Kyle, could, if you if you could, could you, if you could explain the effect that that has had from just um, a policy perspective of um, as near-peer competitors push back and the United States withdraws as a matter of foreign policy, yeah. how, how has that had a real, practical effect on our current missile defense capabilities?
1: Well, first, the effect on, on our allied uh, – you know, we, we have a strategy that relies on others to combine with our own capabilities to provide for mutual defense. And a big part of the U.S. commitment is a nuclear umbrella in certain situations, or in some situations also missile defense capabilities. And when the United States unilaterally withdrew without even notifying our key allies that we were going to withdraw these capabilities and at the same time tried to press the reset button with Russia, it soured relationships in a way that I think still reverberates uh, among our allies. They, They wonder whether they can count on the United States. This becomes very dangerous for a couple of reasons. First... Um, It does contribute to nuclear proliferation. If countries that are relying upon our either defense or deterrent effect from our uh, strategic uh, nuclear program don't think that they can rely on that, then they talk more and more about developing their own systems. That's not good. And I find it ironic that a president who has based much of his thinking uh, on the Uh, with regard to national defense on non-proliferation, which is obviously something to focus on, uh, would yet promote proliferation by causing people to question the United States' uh, commitment. So it's created a problem within our allies, and um, it has resulted in some uh, reaction on the part of some nations to kind of go go their own way. I know the, the Polish government, for example, just recently... Uh, committed to, um, to a Patriot program, uh, if the United States can continue to work with these allies to have an integrated system that can rely upon the right kind of radars and tracking and the like, as, as well as missile systems, um, we can provide a defensive capability, and they don't have to worry about uh, acquiring a, a, an offensive capability. And I would think that would be to everybody's advantage. Uh, but, again, it hasn't quite, uh, quite worked out that way, and I'm a little mystified that people in the current administration don't see the connection between the policy and what happens on the ground.
2: Especially since it's why the president won his Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah.
0: And, and we have seen now, um, you know, as the administration, the Obama administration canceled the, the Bush administration's plans for uh, uh, the third uh, ground-based interceptor site in Poland. Um, and then they, and then we were to, to roll out the European phase adaptive approach with a, the fourth phase culminating in the SM32B, which pro- would, would have provided additional homeland protection. That was canceled as well. And so here we are now with a, um, uh, fewer GBIs at our disposal um, to protect the homeland. Um, and, uh, and in fact, when, when the Secretary of Defense announced that we would be deploying 14 additional GBIs, um, many of us said, yeah, but those should have already been
1: it just got back to the original number of
0: 44. It got back to the original number of 44. So we, we truly are playing catch-up. And then the ground-based midcourse defense system, of course, has um, suffered uh, quite a bit of funding cuts and so is still trying to um, make those necessary improvements that, that should have been happening all along. Um, and then that brings me to the, the next question, which is um, some people argue that because the administration secured the Iran deal, the JCPOA, that the Russians, of course, would argue that there's no, there's no longer a need for missile defense because we've taken care of the nuclear component of the, of the Iranian missile program. Um, and of course, my response to that is, has been but we've seen since the JCPOA was, was finalized that the Iranians are now taking off on missile development and testing. So Senator Cotton, I'd like to turn to you. And um, uh, how should we understand the Iranian missile program at this point, especially after the JCPOA? And, and isn't this a reason to actually expand? And shouldn't we find even greater bipartisan consensus? Um, because we've essentially, even though there's a UN Security Council resolution that essentially prohibits it, they're, they're ignoring that, um, and really at no cost to them. Um, if you could speak to that.
2: Well, the the Iran nuclear deal, so it's one year anniversary tomorrow. The traditional gift for a one year anniversary is paper, which is appropriate since it was a mere parchment barrier to Iran's nuclear ambitions or its regional ing- aggression. Um, is um, still very much a threat to the United States. Many of the limitations uh, on Iran were the mirror sleeves off their vest. They were already facing certain technical and scientific challenges. They had time uh, prohibitions that are going to be roughly aligned with what it would take them to achieve those technical or scientific advances. And as you say, their ballistic missile program has not slowed down much at all. Uh, You see test after test. In recent months, just in the last couple of weeks, you've seen both Chancellor Merkel and the German intelligence service saying they are violating the deal and its associated UN Security Council resolutions by continuing to acquire illicitly uh, nuclear and ballistic missile-related materials through German companies using front groups. So the ballistic missile threat from Iran remains very much at risk uh, to the United States uh, in the long term, to Europe in the medium term, and certainly to our allies and to our troops in the Middle East in the near term. Um, But there's also a threat from the east from Russia. Russian generals and senior civilian leaders are rattling nuclear sabers in a way that we haven't seen since the heights of the Cold War in the 1960s. And we have to take that as a real risk. Um, We don't mistrust Russia and vice versa because we have all those missiles and nuclear warheads. We have those missiles because we mistrust Russia. And as long as Russia, is occupying Crimea and eastern Ukraine and Georgia and Moldova and conducting SNAP exercises and they threaten both conventional and nuclear strikes against NATO allies, we need to continue the development and deployment of missile defenses into those NATO allies.
0: Um, and General Jacoby, some, some people would say uh, that mm-hmm. missile defense is still, it's, it's too hard. We've basically, we've gone as far as we can, technically speaking. Um, and, and I have found, um, across defense programs, it seems like people pick on, they make that argument with, with missile defense in particular. They don't make the same kind of arguments with, with other defense, um, other department defense programs. Um, can you talk from, uh, from the combatant commander of Northern Command uh, how much you uh, truly relied on the ground-based mid-course defense system, and, and also uh, speak a little bit about how uh, this is just sort of par for the course for for military programs that you have to continue to push, you have to continue to evolve, and and then essentially we've proven that missile defense uh, technically works, and and that we we still need to fill out some of these systems technically. Even even GMD can be filled out, we can expand it um, on the on the U.S. homeland, et cetera, and what that would provide our combatant commanders in charge of of protecting the homeland.
3: Unfortunately, um, missile defense at, at some point early in its uh Development, you know, became victim of a slogan, you know, can't hit a bullet with a bullet. And and so that is so catchy that it's hard to overcome when actually there's a, you know, huge number of systems that hit bullets with bullets. I mean, that is well within our skill set next, or right now. So that is, you know, that gets people off track and it gets them thinking wrong about the problem. Um, I will tell you, as the North, Northern, uh, North Northern Command Commander, uh, we got to uh, suffer through and observe you know, the repeated uh, North Korean ICBM, or they weren't ICBM tests, they were their space launch tests, which certainly serve as test beds for ICBM uh, development and the development of the missiles themselves, and the develop, continued now testing of the intermediate range ballistic missiles. And I've sat in the command center and watched them go through this process and watched them launch. And I will tell you that the feeling you get uh, from the thinking about the idea that if I didn't have at least that, that ground-based missile defense, I would have nothing I could do to defend this country. And I'll just give you – that's just a personal perspective. And the American, in my, I walked away from that. I didn't walk into the job uh, uh, banging down the door on missile defense. I left that experience uh, believing that we, we needed to get going and we needed to make sure we could pace the threat that the American people deserve better than no option other than to respond the Cold War way.
1: Can, can I just add one thing? The history of missile defense, When it is written, will include this point over and over and over. Every program was brought about to the point where it could have been effectively deployed and then for political reasons was stopped. It wasn't a matter of technological progress, though it is not easy. General Jacoby would certainly note that. It is not easy. But we've been able to overcome the technical problems. If there were enough funding available, most of these programs could have gone forward. Uh, maybe it's a good thing some of them didn't, but I could, we were briefed more than 20 years ago on the, on the technical feasibility of brilliant pebbles, a space-based system. Well, now it's a lot cheaper now, and it's, it, it could be done in, in better ways now. But th- the point is that it's not technology that's stopping. It. It's political decisions and funding.
0: In the GMD program, in particular, of course, the Obama administration cut it in half. It's the president's first year in office,
1: and Phase Four was simply canceled, even after having been sold as the reason for the pulling back from Poland and the Czech Republic of, of the system that was going to be deployed there. And then uh, our. our
0: far-term systems that that we were investing in the Bush administration directed energy, uh, which is something that we also advocate for in the study, that this is something we would ideally like to put it it on uh, a space-based constellation, um, not just on UAVs, which is the current um, far-term plan for the Missile Defense Agency, Um, that this technology, we were seeing breakthroughs on the airborne laser program, and this administration cut that as well. Um, So we have seen major major, uh, setbacks uh, in that regard. and, and, and to that point, too, uh, the, the Institute for Defense Analysis uh, also did a study, per Senator Kyle's uh, work in the Senate before he left. He got a provision in the bill that mandated a study by the Institute for Defense Analysis to look at this concept of putting space-based interceptors Um, on orbit. And in fact, they found, which we cite heavily in the study, that it is technically feasible um, in the near term, and it is in fact affordable. In fact, if we hadn't cut the budget to the extent that we have under the Obama administration, um, kept it at the same level, about a billion and a half dollars more than it is now annually, we could already be doing this in addition to everything we're already doing um, in the missile defense budget. Um, And so uh, if I could talk a little bit about cost um, and, and the constraints that the, that the Congress finds itself under now and um, and how that has been uh, – how that is controlling the conversation about priorities and defense priorities and something like this. Because one of the big arguments against exactly this is that it's simply cost prohibitive. It's just too expensive. Um, Senator Cotton, could you speak to that a little bit?
2: Um, well, it's not, and it shouldn't. Uh, taking a step back more broadly about our military, Um, Our military is not the reason why we have uh, a $19 trillion debt. We all know the reason for that. Our economy isn't growing strongly enough. Health care and retirement programs of the federal government are wildly out of proportion, um, and we uh, haven't addressed those fundamental problems. If anything, our military helps secure the prosperous economy that we need – So we can have global trades, our economy is strong, so that we can create jobs, so we have more taxpayers and more economic growth to fund the military in the first place. It is simply not true that the military is responsible for the size of the deficit or the debt. And in fact... Anytime we cut our military, as we did throughout the 1990s, it ends up costing us more in the long run. It costs us because our adversaries catch up, because they attack us, because we end up having to fight back. We have to build back capabilities that we lost. That takes more time. It takes more money to build them if we had just maintained them. So even though it's a repeated pattern throughout our history, and most countries' histories, it is the height of folly because in the long term it simply costs more to get back to where you should have been. That's the military as a whole. Missile defense is a relatively small part of our budget as well, and the consequences of failing to develop effective missile defense systems could be truly catastrophic on a national level and on an economic level. Um, so I think what the President's budgets have done over the last eight years to our missile defense systems uh, has been appalling um, because is, I mean, the military as a whole is such a small fraction of uh, the money that our government spends. It's the best return we get on it, and missile defense in particular is even a small, tiny fraction of that. I mean, you hear the same arguments about our nuclear enterprise as well – you know, why do we spend so much money on weapons we never use, when in fact we don't spend that much money on them – three to four percent of total military spending, and in fact we use our nuclear weapons every single day.
0: Um, And that – that brings us to another point, too, that the – the – the the relationship between defensive of, of systems and our nuclear deterrent, um, New START. Uh, the, the, there was some effort to actually put some restrictive language that could have restricted missile defenses in the New START treaty. Um, Senator Kyle, could you, could you speak to that and, um, and how we were able to make sure that that didn't happen, um, but, but also uh, where we are in regards to how uh, people think about that in the New START treaty.
1: We made sure it didn't happen by making sure that uh, the administration understood that the treaty wouldn't be adopted if if language were included in the preamble. The problem is that the administration signaled to the Russians that they didn't need to worry about it anyway, and their actions since then have have borne out the commitments that they probably made. Um, As a result, uh, even though uh, Russia continues to... uh, to talk about it, uh, the reality is the administration hasn't uh, – it has actually canceled plans that we had and not, not moved forward in any particularly meaningful way, other than uh, the one program which was to get back to the original 44 ground-based interceptors, which are not effective except against potentially uh, uh, North Korea at this point. Uh, to to me, it, it wouldn't be effective even against an accidental launch, say, from Russia.
0: Um, and if I could, I wanted to circle back. Uh, it, it made me think that it would be helpful to get General Jacoby to um, explain to – we talked a little bit about the, the striking the limited and, and making sure that the – striking the word limited, in our National Missile Defense Act. Um, do you think, as a former combatant commander, that even just striking that so that the policy is more clear, that the U.S. government is no longer um, – merely keeping a limited system, but just as a combatant commander, how helpful would that be so that you could possibly advocate for more GBIs, uh, support space-based defenses? Um, uh, would, would that be a useful thing from from a combatant commander uh, to, to make it explicit that the United States was no longer intentionally remaining limited in its defense?
3: Um, you can understand, uh, you know, receive an explanation of how we got there, and I'm sure there were uh, a lot of thoughtful people working their way through just what the word should say. It's, no, it's, no, it's not helpful anymore. Uh, if you're trying to think of what was the positive outcome you were looking for by putting limited in there, it's not helping now. We're, we're, uh, we, we are defaulting to policy instead of strategy. And that's, that means that we're not putting uh, the emphasis on uh, ends we're trying to accomplish uh, the means at our disposal to do it and the risk that we're taken by not uh, pacing, keeping pace with the threat. I don't think there would be anybody that would argue for a race, to start a strategic race. We absolutely have to, I, I would say, start by ensuring that we have you know, a, a really clear eyed view of our threats. Uh, both from a policy standpoint and technically, from a technical standpoint, uh, so that we're not caught by surprise by strategic systems. That's, that's We can't allow that to happen in today's day and age. And then we need to make sure that we're taking the prudent steps and we're making the investments in research and development and we're making the investments in, in test beds like the amendment calls for to ensure that uh, we can pace the threat and not allow of uh, vulnerability to grow that can be exploited by potential adversaries. I think it, it is uh, essential that in today's day and age, when things develop so rapidly,
2: uh, that we not allow ourselves to, to let that gap widen. I, I would actually second that we don't want an arms race, but I would go further and say if we didn't have one, we would win with Russia. One reason why Russia continues to say that a, the developing and employing defensive capabilities is provocative is because they can't afford it and they can't do it, just like in the 1990s, when the Strategic Defense Initiative was one of the things that convinced Gorbachev that he couldn't win a race with Ronald Reagan.
0: Um, I think that's exactly right, and I'd also say that, that, you know, right now the Russians are already trying to do that. They're already uh, targeting our assets, and so it wouldn't be a race to simply close those gaps and vulnerabilities that exist today. Um, with that, I would like to take a couple of questions from the audience. Um, if you do, help them raise your hand, please. Um, the gentleman here.
3: Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, Japan native US citizen, uh, member of Reagan Foundations. Um Couple of questions. Uh, number one, my na- uh, my mother country, Japan, <laughs> Is she going to be safe? Uh, I'm I'm talking about missile defense uh, referring to North Korea. Um, Number two, thank you, uh, Senator, for going to – I mean, speaking at the Flag Day dinner in Southern California. I just moved to D.C. from Southern California. They are telling me, oh, yeah, he was great. So you have lots of friends in Southern California.
0: I'd like to answer the first question: um, How are we doing at protecting Japan?
3: Well, first of all, I'd say that um, Japan is a terrific ally, and in a larger construct, we consider our alliances and our friendships to be a competitive advantage, not a disadvantage. Okay, so uh, you know, Japan's security is uh, interwoven with U.S. security and South Korean security. In fact. China and Russia have almost equal stake in peace and stability in Northeast Asia but uh, over time uh, with the with the Japanese uh, government you know we've we've tried to create a deterrent effect uh, with our our forces and our activities there uh, that would uh, keep Japan safe and deny uh, um, you know potential aggressors from uh, exploiting vulnerabilities and I would say that today um, I'm sure Japan feels increasingly threatened by the two things rhetoric and range rings okay And so the the rhetoric is unhelpful and it's destabilizing that comes out of North Korea and the range rings of their uh, capabilities that they are, which everyone should be concerned that they're increasingly willing to test. Whether it's successful or not, the fact that they're testing, and testing at at a uh, pretty fast pace means they're serious about having a uh, true capability. And so those things uh, should be of concern. And that's why I think the uh, discussion of THAAD was important. And uh, I think that's why missile defense is really a right for, in a large sense, missile defense is a right to protect populations and their infrastructure from, you know, what's essentially a terror weapon, really, is an ICBM that. And so uh, I think that plays an integral part of it. And I think that uh, we get a chance to talk to the other stakeholders to include the Chinese in the region, you know, get past the rhetoric, focus on the range rings. I think we'll see that there are right steps we can do to deter conflict. Uh, in very meaningful ways, and that's the, that's the key to Japan's uh, security.
0: Oh, I would just add too, Japan is one of our um, greatest partners in missile defense co-development with one system, the two A. So um, there was great work being done there. There's another question.
2: Yes, Hi, uh, Victoria Sampson, Secure World Foundation. I was interested to hear your study found that um, space-based interceptors could be done at a Reasonable cost, more or less speaking. Um, obviously, you crunched the numbers. What kind of uh, interceptor constellation were you thinking? Um, what kind of cost would that be? Um, what kind of altitude would they fly? How would you do space traffic management? That sort of thing. What, what, what were you guys looking at in terms of costs and technological development? Thank you.
0: So what we did, what we did for that, is we, we looked. We relied heavily on the work that the Institute for Defense Analysis already did on crunching those numbers. Um, it would be, a, um, at, on the outset, it would have to be a limited constellation, or it could be a limited constellation. So we could roll this out over time and improve it. Uh, many people say, oh, okay, now how expensive is going to be a, a global constellation? That's not what we're advocating for initially. Um, uh, this would cost uh, less than $2 billion annually um, over the life cycle of the system. So that's 20 years, putting up a constellation up twice. Um, it is it is incredibly affordable. Again, I'd say, I mean, if you just look at the delta of what this administration cut for the missile defense agency budget, you budget, you put that back in, you already have enough money to actually get to work on an initial uh, constellation. Um, so, uh, we don't, we're not uh, set in our ways in terms of what the concept has to look like. We use that as an example and rely on IDA's numbers there. Um, but, but what we do suggest is that MDA just has to get started on this. We have the technical capabilities. It is affordable. We just need to get to concept development.
2: Hi, uh, Thomas Keenan. I'm an intern here at Hudson. Um, just continuing on the theme of, uh, of budget, because budgetary limitations have been mentioned um, a few times. If uh, a new administration was to increase the defense budget, is uh, increased GBIs and kind of new uh, SBIs are they priority number one for for an increased defense budget, or are there still areas which take more precedence?
1: I can tell you a little bit from a – I'm looking now in the rear view mirror rather than uh, forward, as, as you are. But situational awareness, I think, would be one of the top priorities for space assets. Important for any system that you later develop anyway, but it also has its own benefits. Systems that would provide coverage all over the world. You're not limited, then, to particular theater coverage, whatever you can cover overseas, you can cover over allies, you can cover over the homeland. Um, Systems, in other words, that would complement what we already have rather than replacing what we already have. And it would begin to demonstrate the the concepts that could then be built on That was the idea of the language that we got in for the study, and that was some of the thinking, and it's been borne out in the results of the analysis, and that's what's being proposed in the study, as to what the political uh, view would be of a new administration or of the Congress next year on priorities, and the military, frankly, also. I'd leave that to our other two experts here.
2: I, I would say that you know the most immediate priority needs to be radi- readiness. We still have uh, troops deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq. They're still being strained uh, by you know the uh, budget limitations. You know we've got aircraft that are flying too many hours that are not be- not able to fly that are having to fly extended missions because their uh, relief is not are not able to take off. Um, that's a relatively small pot of money, though, in the much larger pot that needs to be expanded and. Uh, missile defense programs to be one of the top priorities in that, in part because of the development time.
1: And uh, my uh, answer, by the way, didn't uh, focus on military or security needs overall. I mean, clearly you've got things like cyber and all of those things. I was specifically limiting mine
3: to, if you were to do something in missile defense, where would you start? So as a former commander, I I know this I don't want you to to think I'm uh, you know, hiding behind a military construct here but so I've been retired for two years and you get out of date fast uh, in terms of you know some of the technical things. So I'll just tell you when I was the commander what I testified to just a couple of years ago and I, I don't you know you never want to cut the legs out from underneath the current serving uh, commander but what I testified to was I'd spend my first dollar on in, on strategic intelligence okay. Uh, we don't need to have these prolonged and contentious debates about, uh, you know, where is the North Korean missile program? Where is the. No- we were caught by surprise with the North Korean capability. Uh, uh, and I don't mean that as an indictment on the intelligence community. We spent a lot of effort over the last decade and a, and a half, rightfully so on very tactical and operational intelligence, and I think we have to reinvent our strategic intelligence capability, and we need to know more about North Korean strategic capabilities, know, know more about their strategic rocket forces. The same thing's true with Iran and other countries that aspire to have uh, strategic capability, and we're going to have to make that job one, uh, because we should be. We should be threat-based, and we should pace the threat, not race the threat. So I would say uh, that's the the first dollar. The second – I'm sorry.
0: Oh, no, I was going to say, sir, would you say then you're talking about space sensors as well? Because I know that um, not only is there reluctance to put interceptors in space, but there's even reluctance to put sensors in space. Everyone wants to, you know, do terrestrial or sea-based because of the – the the fear of being provocative again in space, but that is really our best vantage point for seeing what's going on in North Korea, for instance.
3: So as a converted infantryman to a aerospace defense commander, uh, the second priority that became clear to me was, and and not just today, but looking forward into the future, is our our ability to do discrimination effectively. Many, many uh, uh, systems that we aspire to field really depend on better discrimination. So the long-range discriminating radar is really critical. We need to have that capability to be space-based, not just ground-based and sea-based, where we have sometimes episodic coverage. So those are the two things. And then missile inventory. Uh, It's hard to say that that's a lower priority. It's not. I just told you what, what, what would be the first two things that I always testified to.
2: Go ahead. Hi, Michael Smits, Hudson Political Studies Program. Um, Two sides of the same question from a layman's perspective. I know one of the issues with negotiating the Iran deal was that technology or equipment could be used for multiple purposes, so determining intent was a complicated issue. When it comes to SBIs, um,
0: first, uh, what are the other potential uses of the sort of technology we'd be putting up into space, but at the same time, How can we effectively communicate to both allies and adversaries exactly our intentions
2: um, and how they align with our behavior?
1: To some extent, uh, depending upon what the system is, it could have an offensive capability as well as a defensive capability, if that's what you're referring to. But as General Jacoby said, there are a lot of things that we need to do that don't have any offensive uh, or have very limited o- offensive uh, capability that we need in order to be able to defend ourselves uh, in a variety of ways. So there's a lot that can be done that shouldn't raise any question whatsoever. I think it's more of an excuse uh, for some who say, well, this could potentially be used for offensive reasons, too. Um, my own view of that is, so what? Um we need a defense. That's what we're doing it for. And you're not going to see us use it for offensive purposes. Um, but if the United States needs a capability that could be used for either one, uh, so be it. If we need it for defense, let's go ahead and do
3: it. I think you bring up a good point, though. I mean, a lot of what we do in the strategic realm, other than the real technical <laughs> aspects of it, needs to be very clear and transparent. It doesn't need to be you know, cloaked in, in ambiguity. Uh, You know, that's why there are inspection regimes. And uh, they did contribute to a relatively stable deterrent relationship when the world was a lot simpler. And uh, it's not simple now. And so now deterrence is probably going to require combinations of offense and defense. It's going to require combinations of kinetic and non-kinetic and of nuclear and uh, conventional. Uh, But we ought to be willing to be clear and transparent. Hopefully, it, hopefully, every one of those things does more than one or two or three missions, or we would be uh, maybe not using the taxpayers' money wisely.
0: And I would just add, to, of course, the, the, the Russians uh, don't have any qualms about having uh, dual capabilities and dual uses for their assistance. Um, and with that, uh, if you would join me, I think we're going to close up here. If there's no more questions, I'm going to end it there. Um, join me, please, in um, thanking our, our panelists, and thank you for coming today to this